The title of the message is, for one, what makes for peace, and do you know what makes for peace? Of course, we just read Luke chapter 19 here. Jesus is coming into the city of Jerusalem, and he begins to weep. Now, some translate it that he actually wailed. That would have been the second time, actually, there was a public crying on behalf of Jesus. Prior to this, he wept over Lazarus's grave. That's a whole other story. We're going to actually talk about it a little bit next week. But he is, he is wailing. He is sobbing. He, something is disturbing him to the very core. I remember when I was about 10 years of age, I saw my mother who she was dealing with some things with regard to one of my sisters and she was just started to cry and she just fell on the bed. I'm 10 years old. I've never seen my mother like that. It so disturbed me as I saw my mom on her kind of face on the bed beginning to cry. I mean, this is really, really intense stuff. And Jesus says, look, you, I'm just going to paraphrase it. You don't understand what makes for your peace, which raises the question, why, what is peace? And why would he be so concerned about peace? Uh, is peace more than just the cessation of strife? Is it more than the cessation of war? Absolutely. There's no doubt about it. This issue of peace is much bigger than we often think. Um, just because World War II, you know, is no longer in existence doesn't mean that we're still at peace. It implies there's a breakdown. If there's not peace, there's a breakdown. There's decay. There's disintegration. There's fragmentation on, on not only a physical level, but a, a, in mind and in relationships and with Almighty God. This is a big, big issue Jesus is addressing. And he says to them, you don't understand your day of visitation. You're not taking, you're not taking like advantage you're not taking the opportunity to make the most important decision of your life because i'm presenting myself to you as the messiah as the king and and it's he's saying the most important decision comes down to what you're going to do with me and he's concerned that they're going to miss making the most important decision of their life all right you may have a seat at this time imagine if it was 1990 right? So that's 25 years ago. And someone came here, or we go back 1990, and someone held up what we know to be an iPhone. But just to imagine seeing this, you know, if you're living in 1990, most of us were alive at that time. Some of you, however, are like two years old. But you go back to 1990, someone walks in and goes, look, I want to show you something. We know it to be today an iPhone, but we don't know what it is in 1990. And they pass it around and they say, okay, look, just out of curiosity, what do you think this is? And we start taking a look at it. And, and I'm convinced, here's what we would be saying. Well, this is either a radio. It's either a camera. Maybe it's some handheld device for games. And, and some of us might even say, well, it's a really fancy flashlight or something. And, and we haven't even turned it on. So we're not really sure. We're just holding it and thinking, you know, what is this thing? And then imagine the person turns on the iPhone and, and then like, you know, passes it around and we're looking at this thing and it almost looks like a little TV of sorts and we're seeing color and pixelation that we've really never seen coming from a screen before. In fact, it's far better than any Sony TV that we have. And when we're still wondering, geez, what is this? 
And, and then this person touches the screen, and we've never seen any technology like this in 1990, touches and kind of moves his finger, and then it opens up an, a, you know, an app, or it opens up you know, on the screen this ability that well, it looks like a camera now. Oh my goodness, you can actually see through this device Oh, this is some type of camera or some type of seeing device or something. And then you push a button, it takes a picture. And it takes a picture in HD. Well, HD didn't exist in 1990. Oh, and there's a video capability. And it's like you could push that, take a little video. You could take that video right to Johnny Carson's show. The, actually, the, 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 the footage would be better than any camera, you know, at NBC Studios. You're thinking, whoa, this is incredible. Now, pause here for a second. Um, This person hasn't even tapped in to texting. What's texting in 1990? The person hasn't even tapped into email. What's email in 1990? How many of you are tracking with me so far in this? All right, watch this. The person hasn't even tapped into the internet. What's the internet? The only person that knows about the internet is Al Gore. You know what I mean? So it's like... What's the internet? What are you talking about, right? All right. You say, why are you beginning this way? Because, listen, you guys, as we are studying an event that took place 2,000 years ago, you got to trust me on this, the drama that's taking place at this time, the significance that's taking place at this time, this truth, the power, okay? They are all addressing, all of this is addressing, like, the greatest realities of life, this particular event in drama and significance and truth and power. In fact, what we just read a little bit about, and we're going to turn to Mark uh, chapter 11 in just a little bit, um, you could say is a definite top five historical event in the history of man. However, please hear me. Up to this point, it's like almost just holding up an iPhone and we're living in 1990. You're thinking, what is that? That's an interesting design. It must be special because it's made so well. Our objective is, please hear me, we got to turn on this event, if you will. Our objective is, we got to go back 2,000 years ago and understand what was taking place as Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. Trust me on this. Okay, it involves texting, it involves internet, it involves HD. It is much deeper, more phenomenal, more powerful than... (laughs) I, I th- well, I think that we can even imagine if even we understood most of what was taking place. It is monstratively huge. Turn with me, please, to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. We're going to get into that in just a little bit. Here's the thing, guys. 2,000 years ago, basically to the very day, okay? Today... is basically Nissan 10. If you go back 2,000 years ago to this very day, and it always doesn't align on Sunday with our calendar. Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. He's on a mount east of Jerusalem, which is called the Mount of Olives, which is higher than Jerusalem itself. It overlooks the city. It's called the Mount of Olives. Jerusalem means city of peace. Now, the city that he is making his way into is not known a lot of peace, I mean, it's been destroyed some 30 times. The Babylonians snatched it from the Jews. Alexander the Great came through the city. Now it's under Roman control. In fact, it would be under Roman control for 666 years. Six, six, six. 
And yet, it's already witnessed the Prince of Peace himself. I'm talking about Jesus who was dedicated in Jerusalem. Mary and Joseph took him there from Bethlehem a few miles away. And when Jesus was 12 years of age, remember that story? It happened to take place on Passover this very week, actually two th- many years ago, over 2,000 years ago. And that is when Jesus was 12 years of age. It's recorded in Luke chapter 12. And he's up at the Temple Mount. And he's, you know, learning from the rabbis and he's asking a bunch of phenomenal questions, which tells us he was a great listener and he's downloading all this great uh, information and he's growing physiologically and mentally. And then after Passover, uh, Mary and Joseph, there's some type of disconnect. And, you know, 2,000 years ago, families traveled in caravans. That's one way you, you know, they were self-sufficient. You would protect each other and things. Somehow, some way, there was a disconnect. And Mary and Joseph go a day out of Jerusalem, turn around, it's like, where's Jesus? You know, he should have been with his cousin or something or, or the neighbor. And it's like, my goodness gracious, he's not. They go back to Jerusalem. Here's the point I want to make. They don't actually see him for three days. It's an interesting foreshadowing of what would take place 21 years later during the same holy day. It's like they, they don't see him for three days, interesting, during Passover. And once they find him, Mary asks, well, son, what are you doing? And he's, don't you know that I'm about my father's business? 21 years later, he comes into Jerusalem this very day, 2,000 years ago. It's all about the father's business. He's sitting on a donkey coming into the city of Jerusalem. Let me ask you, the idea of Jesus on a donkey sitting Uh, sitting there coming into the city of Jerusalem, does that blow you away? Probably not. A donkey is no stallion. But the context of this event is, is connected to a broader context in Israel's history. Again, I'm just holding up the iPhone right now. It's like, what is it? You know, well, hundreds of thousands have gathered in Jerusalem. They've come to the feast of Passover. And well, what is Passover? It was a historical event that took place 1,300 years prior to when Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. Passover is the day that Israel was delivered from enslavement in Egypt, which involved the shedding of lamb's blood being applied to the doorposts of their home. It's the day that God passed over homes in Egypt. He brought judgment upon the ungodly, salvation to the righteous, Those who were covered in the blood, the lamb's blood, were blessed. Those who were not covered in the lamb's blood experienced judgment upon their firstborn. Passover proved to be a springboard for a whole generation of Israelites who were covered in the blood to be released from the grip of Egypt's enslavement. Therefore, please hear me, Passover speaks of sin covered by lamb's blood. It speaks of freedom. It speaks of new beginning. This historical event, the Lord never wanted Israel to forget, to put it on the calendar. So every year they bump into it and they remember their past and the Lord's past work of redemption in their life. In fact, the Lord had required that every male Jew would present himself before the Lord during three major holy days, and one of which was Passover. So you have hundreds of thousands of people in Jerusalem at this particular time. Why? Well, as I mentioned, the Lord never wanted Israel 
to forget their redemptive history because, please hear this, because it was a shadow of greater things to come. Actually, what happened in Egypt was like a prophecy of a greater work, this time to impact the entire world. Okay, you guys, I'm tempted to ask, are you tracking so far, all right? Still kind of looking at the iPhone, haven't even turned it on yet. But as Jesus is atop the beginning of, or the top of the, uh, the Mount of Olives, and he's beginning his descent, okay, please hear this, everyone in the city of Jerusalem could actually look east from Jerusalem and see this taking place. Well, I have actually footage. I've been to the Mount of Olives many times, but I've actually have footage. You can look it up on YouTube where I'm in the Kidron Valley at the base of the Mount of Olives and the Mount of Olives is like behind me and you can see, I mean, it's the, the ascent up the hill. You get a real sense of the topography. But I, but I mentioned a broader context to what's happening here. And, and that is what we've been talking about. You go back 1,300 years to the day And I want to put a scripture up on the screen. It's Exodus chapter 12, verse 3, okay? Now look at this. This is very important. The Lord is speaking to the children of Israel, and he says, speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, on the 10th of this month, every man shall take for himself a, can someone tell me? A lamb, okay. The Lord is speaking to a people who are enslaved in Egypt. That's the context of that passage. He is telling them, in effect, that your ticket out of enslavement in Egypt is a lamb. That's what he's saying, in effect. The lamb represents forgiveness, freedom, new beginning, relationship with God. And the Lord is saying to Israel, I want you to set aside, I want to just kind of speak in real general terms, I want you to set aside your ticket. I want you to set it aside for four days. Your kids will say, what, what, are you, what are you doing, Dad? It's like, well, you know, that, the Lord has instructed us to set aside a lamb. Now, more instruction. Look at this up on the screen. Verse 5, your lamb will be without, can someone tell me? Blemish, okay? A male of the first year. You shall take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now, you shall keep it until the 14th day. Well, that's Passover. That's, that's like this Friday, Nisan 14. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. They shall take some of the blood, put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses where they eat. Now, now we're just beginning to turn on the lights, actually, historically. We're just beginning to turn on the iPhone, if you will. <laughs> Why? Please hear me. Look up here for a second. Because Jesus is on a donkey over, over the, like, overlooking the city of Jerusalem. You have Hundreds of thousands of people in Jerusalem. And he is presenting himself on Nisan 10. The day historically Israel set aside the Lamb of God. He is presenting himself to the city as the Lamb, if you will. As the ticket I'm just speaking really generally here. That represents forgiveness and freedom and new beginning and relationship with God and a whole lot more. And that explanation, by the way, is a majorly oversimplistic explanation. But nevertheless, it's a good introduction. We're just starting to turn on the iPhone, so to speak. And if you look at verse 5, we have it up on the screen. Your lamb shall be without blemish. 
okay? Listen, this is very important. From Sunday to basically Thursday afternoon, as I see it, it's a whole other study, you have Jesus in Jerusalem. He's up close with the leaders and with the people. It's almost as if the Lord is saying, take a good look at my son, because he is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world without spot, without blemish. It's during this time the Herodians approach Jesus. It's during this time the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And he's going to be before the priests and Herod and Pilate. And they're all going to be examining him. And they're all trying to find some blemish to justify their ill intent. How many of you are tracking so far? Could you raise your hand? Okay, this is so good. I'm so proud of you. So getting back to that iPhone illustration, by the way, am I bugging you with that iPhone illustration? But getting back to that iPhone illustration, now we have to push some apps to make this thing like, whoa. And so here's where we get to the outline. I don't know if you have your notes in front of you, you want to fill this in. Number one, here's the thing. We see a plan. We see a plan unfolding and gaining. It's unstoppable in momentum. A plan is unfolding. Remember, in studying Ephesians chapter 1, Paul writes, Blessed are the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. Listen to this. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. What was he just saying? He was saying that before anything was ever created, the Father had a plan. It's like the Father thought this plan, Jesus bought it, the Holy Spirit brought it. And that plan from eternity is actually unfolding in intense momentum at this time in the city of Jerusalem. In fact, Mark chapter 10, verse 32 tells us Jesus... When, when making his way to Jerusalem down in the Jordan Valley and then makes a right and goes up from Jericho up to Jerusalem, 1,500 feet below sea level to 2,500 feet, 2,400 feet above sea level, it's like the Bible says he set his face towards Jerusalem. There's a sense of urgency. There's a sense of timing to all of this. And the second point is, Jesus is actually initiating and managing a major public event. Obviously, Jesus has been public for over three years, but this is the first time he initiates and manages a public event. Now, here's the thing you got to understand. I mean, there's nothing in our culture that even compares to this. Like, in our culture, we have big public events. I mean, you got the NCAA tournament going on. You You know, the college, that's a big one. Uh, you have Super Bowl, you have the Grammys, you know, you have Easter, of course, you have weddings and things. But this, this is nothing in comparison to what I just mentioned. This is a monster, monster public event he is putting together. It's much bigger than the Grammys. It's, it's, a, it's much bigger than July 4th. And he is involved in the fine details. It's the only public event Jesus initiated and managed. Now look with me, Mark chapter 11, verse 1. It reads, When they drew near Jerusalem to Bethage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, he said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and as soon as you have entered it, you will find a colt on which no one has sat. Loose it and bring it. Verse three, and if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it. And immediately he will send it here. 
Passover was like Israel's July 4th, but a thousand times more. Israel is looking for a future redemption. When John the Baptist, the greatest prophet born of a woman, saw Jesus at his baptism, he said to those who were around, he testified, behold the Lamb of, can someone tell me? God, okay, that takes away the sins of the world. Well, I mean, the lambs there back in Egypt, I know this, for, if you're here for the first time, you're thinking lambs and blood and all this stuff, but, but I think you're probably understanding this. Lambs back in Egypt were not lambs of God. I mean, this, he's saying that's a big playoff that Egyptian rescue there. That's huge to say that. He's, he's the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And what took place in Egypt was regional. What's going to take place with him, the Messiah, is going to impact the entire world. And, and Israel was looking for the Messiah. And there also a real sense of anticipation during Passover. Why? Because Passover spoke of a historical deliverance. And they're still under the thumb of Gentiles. They're still under the thumb of Rome. Furthermore, let me tell you, the religious leaders in Jerusalem, the priests, it's hard for us to understand this. Uh, the aristocrats, they were the most corrupt guys in Israel. They were so corrupt, it's sickening. They were just killing it, making major money off of worship there in the temple. They were totally not spiritual guys. They didn't believe in the spiritual realm. They didn't believe in resurrection. These guys were not, they needed the Lord. They needed the Lord Jesus. Here's what I'm trying to say. I hope you feel this. Please hear me. For Jesus to initiate a public event during Passover, when you have hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people in Jerusalem, on the hill, overlooking the city, that everybody can see what's going on, that when there's cries of Hosanna, people can hear it. I've been at the southern steps of the Temple Mount. I, it's not a scientific thing that I've ever... I, just, I, well, it's my hunch is if someone shouted from the top of that mountain, it would reverberate through the valley. My, my hunch is you could actually hear what was going on. If everybody was kind of still, you could hear what was going on at the top of that mountain. For Jesus to do this, I'm telling you right now, he's either a total lunatic or in fact, he is the Lord. Because it's, I don't even know how to compare it to someone you know, doing something like this in our culture. I don't know if it's someone walking down Pennsylvania Avenue in front of the White House just saying, you know, I'm going to be the next president. I'm going to lead you guys into the promised land, all this economic mess and crazy things. And it's like, who are you? No, I'm just telling you, I am, I am your guy. It's like, you're, you're probably a lunatic. I mean, for Jesus to stand atop the Mount of Olives and do what he's doing, it's, you know, C.S. Lewis said, you know, Jesus is either Lord, liar, lunatic. How many of you ever heard that type of categorization? Right? Forget the liar thing. This, is, this would be like, you're not even, he's either a lunatic or he's a liar. And it just reminds us that it's intellectually disingenuous to take a moderate view of Jesus. Because it's true, he is either, if you want to boil it down, the Lord, and he is, can I hear an amen to that, or he's a liar or he's a lunatic. Here's the third point. The backdrop is both historic Passover as well as the clear fulfillment of prophecy. Like if you're here for the first time, please hear me. 
Prophecy is identifying future events before they happen. Only God can do that because he knows the beginning from the end. And there are no prophecies in the Quran, no prophecies in the Book of Mormon, no prophecies in the Hindu Vedas. There's a lot of prophecies in the Bible. And this is actually this day a fulfillment of prophecy. Daniel chapter 9, verse 24 through 27, identify a prophecy of the coming Messiah. In short, the Lord foretold that from the day King Artaxerxes made a decree to rebuild Jerusalem, it would be 483 years later, 173,880 days, until Messiah. Many believe that aligns perfectly with the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. Nisan 10, AD 32. But there's more to this. Zechariah 9.9 foretold the king of Israel would enter Jerusalem riding on a donkey. It reads, Rejoice greatly, O people of Zion, and shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He's righteous and victorious, yet he's humble, riding on a donkey, even a donkey's colt. It's like, whoa, here's an interesting thing. Actually, there's two donkeys a part of this triumphal entry. We don't have time to really look at all the passages here, but there's two. Okay, Jesus is riding a mother, riding a female donkey with a little baby boy donkey uh, with her who's nursing at the time. That's what the Bible describes. This isn't like Jesus is coming into Jerusalem as this Islamic invaders will knock off some heads. It's like this incredible picture of the Prince of Peace presenting himself to Israel. And Genesis 49 tells us, the scepter will not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from his descendants until the coming of the one to whom it belongs, the one whom all nations will obey. His he ties his foal to a grapevine, the colt of his donkey to a choice vine. You see, if we were in Jerusalem like Auburnites and we were watching this come down, Jesus come down the Mount of Olives, we might think, oh, it looks like the iPhone, but I have no idea what that is really. But to Jews... They're thinking David. They're thinking, well, the prophecies of Zechariah 9.9, that the king of Israel who restores the throne of David will come into Jerusalem. He will present himself as the king, like riding a donkey. To them, it becomes HD. It is so big. It's monstrous. They would see Jesus as a candidate to the true king in Israel, not Herod. And they would wonder if he was the fulfillment of the promised Messiah. The fourth point is he rode a donkey. A donkey carries burdens. And down the Mount of Olives, which overlooks Jerusalem, and that donkey carried the Messiah who was carrying a burden. I'm going to use a big term as the propitiation, if you want to fill that in, for the sins of the world. Jesus would be the ransom that would bring freedom to our life. He is the Passover lamb. The idea of propitiation is like a big sponge and he's just, he's just paying the debt of sin, absorbing the wrath of sin. He would there on the cross. Fifth thing, jot this down, praise resonated from the Mount of Olives, which would have definitely captured the attention of the people in Jerusalem. 
And the praise started down the hill outside of Jericho. Remember with blind Bartimaeus, son of David, have mercy on me. But Matthew 29 or 21 verse 9 reads, the multitudes who went before and those who followed, and we have it here in Mark as well, cried out saying, Hosanna to the son of David, which is like this code phrase, we totally believe you're the Messiah. You come from Judah, the right tribe. You come from the right right line, David. You were born in the right city, uh, Bethlehem, Micah 5.2. Those are big things to say. Really big. And, and it's probably, most scholars believe you have, you have Hosanna to the son of David. Watch this. And then you have this cry, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's like, it's like they're chanting this, you know, Hosanna, save now, son of David, Messiah, king. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Is that not cool or what? And John's gospel tells us, okay, a lot of details here. Good job. Hang in here. Watch this. John 12, 12, I think we have it on the screen. Next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Okay, verse 13, took, they took branches of, I love palm trees, of palm trees. And we think, and they're waving it. I mean, again, to us, that's just an iPhone not even turned on yet. But to a Jew who's looking through the lens of Scripture, oh, those palm branches actually speak of something really big. In fact, the sixth point is the palm branches are a code connection to the Feast of Tabernacles. And the term tabernacle is associated with God's presence. It is a feast that will be celebrated ultimately during the reign of Messiah, during the thousand-year reign of Christ when he returns. But for them to be waving palm branches, they're saying, oh, it's all happening right now. This is so big. The crowds are quoting Psalm 118. Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, pray. Send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And this psalm, Psalm 118, 25 through 26 was the song sung on the seventh day of tabernacles called the Great Hosanna. A lot being said here, but tabernacles carries the idea of God's presence, tabernacling or his presence in our midst. He's faithful. He's going to get us from A to B. How many of you remember... How many of you remember the Great Transfiguration, the Mount of Transfiguration when... Jesus took Peter, James, and John atop that mount and his countenance turned kind of nuclear white and Moses and Elijah appeared to him. How many of you remember that? Just raise your hand real quick. Okay, do you remember what Peter's response was? He was like, oh Lord, should we build booths? (laughs) You know, we're thinking, Pete, what are you thinking? And stuff. oh, I'll tell you what he's thinking. He's thinking tabernacles. And maybe it took place around fall. He's thinking, oh, the kingdom now. The king, now, establishing. I mean, hey, Moses and Elijah show up. This is pretty good news. The bookends of Judaism. Let's rock and roll it. Is it happening now? For Jesus to come into Jerusalem, just trust me on this. Wave palm branches. It's like, palm branches, that's so weird. We don't see that in our culture. But 2,000 years ago, it's huge. They are saying, you are the king. And Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
You got to keep your finger here. Everybody has to see this. I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 7. It's such, it's such worth the trip. Revelation chapter 7. That's the last book in the New Testament. Just go all the way to the right. Okay, this is such a killer snapshot. You got to see this. I was going to put it on the screen, but we have so much going on this morning. Thought I'd just turn to it. Revelation chapter 7. Please look with me in verse 9, Revelation 7, verse 9. For time's sake, unable to develop context and things, I just want you to see this. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one can number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, tongues, standing before the throne, before the, everybody say it, Lamb, big code word. I mean, the redemptive one who bore our sin, created everything new in himself, clothed in white robes. That speaks of righteousness. Your sins are forgiven. And what are they doing? They have palm branches in their hands. Look up here for a second. This is a picture of the heavenly scene, actually. It's a picture of a heavenly scene. It's a future picture. Okay, palm branches in the hands. (laughs) I mean, John is doing his best to describe and identify for us divine, heavenly realities, future realities. How do you do that? How do you explain an iPhone to someone in 1990? How do you explain heavenly, divine realities of the future from a person who's living in the first century? Maybe the Lord had to kind of bring it down and kind of show him the iPhone, if you will. And Okay, palm branches, that, you, know, you know what that would mean to you, John. Palm branches is king and tabernacle and Lord reigns and he's, just, he's, he's the sovereign and he's the almighty. I just think it's interesting. I mean, this is a picture. You got people from all the tribes throughout the entire world, big, small, black, or white. These are not just messianic Jews waving palm branches. This is all of us. I love that. Number seven, it's the last public event before the crucifixion. And this will be the beginning of intense pressure. Intense pressure that Jesus will openly experience in Jerusalem from those who are seeking to justify their plan to have him put to death. And number eight, at the base of the Mount of Olives, Jesus, he wept like a prophet as he declared that Jerusalem did not understand what was needed for their, can someone tell me, peace, and then foretold them that Jerusalem would eventually be destroyed. As I mentioned, going back to Luke chapter 19, verse 41, we already read, as he drew near the city, he saw the city, wept over. That's the second time we know of that he wept publicly. Prior to that, it was a few weeks before at Lazarus's tomb. It might be rendered wailed. And then he said, if you had known, even you, especially in this, your day, the things that make for your peace. He's just so burdened. He's deep down inside. He's so moved. Let's ask a question. What is peace? Why would Jesus be so concerned about peace? To the extent that he is convulsing, apparently. He is so moved and grieved and sad about what is transpiring. 
I mean, the title of the message is What Makes for Peace and Do You Know? Do we, do, do we know? Do you know what makes for your peace? Again, the fact that Jesus is bursting into tears over the fact that Jerusalem doesn't get it when it comes to the subject of peace, it must be very important. Is Jesus saying, you don't understand what's necessary for the cessation of strife and war? I don't believe so. Even though Israel's a conquered people at this time, the Romans have conquered the Jews, there's, there's relative peace in the country. Oh, will there be a man by the name of Barabbas during Passover this week who will take out his Sakari knife that's underneath the clothing and knock a Roman off from behind or something? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, there's still little skirmishes here and there, but, but it's relative peace. It's not like these bombs are going off in Jerusalem. I mean, if you look at Israel today, you have a couple enemies around. You got Hezbollah to the north, you have Hamas to the south and to the east as well, and pretty much all around. It's not a laughing matter. Um, there's, there's a cessation of strife and war presently. Does that mean that there's peace? No, there's still not peace. So therefore to say peace is the cessation of strife or cessation of war, um, well, it can be, but it's not necessarily the case. Hear this. Israel made Rome their enemy rather than sin. And Jesus recognizes this. The ruling council in Israel would choose Barabbas ultimately, the insurrectionist, the murderer over Jesus. It would set Israel on a trajectory that would lead to their demise Ultimately, a revolt would begin in 66 AD in Caesarea, the very year Paul and James, the half-brother of Jesus, were murdered. It would culminate in the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD with the Romans surrounding Jerusalem, this embankment reference there in Luke chapter 19. And this is a very important distinction to make. Please hear me. It's like if you haven't heard anything up to this point, well, what we said is very important, but you've got to really hear this. Yes, Caesar is a type of darkness. Yeah, he's not a good guy. Yes, the high priest is a type of darkness. Yes, the breakdown of family is a type of darkness. Yes, addiction is a type of darkness or the Ayatollah in Iran is a type of darkness and ignorance and racism is a type of darkness and exploitation of women is a type of darkness and sexual immorality is a type of darkness. But the reason Jesus is weeping is because he knows there's a darkness behind the darkness. And what is that darkness? John 12, 31 tells us that speaking to Greeks who had approached him a little bit later after this, he says, now is the judgment of this world and now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Um, what ruler are you talking about? Are you talking about the emperor of Rome? Are you talking about the rulers Annas and Caiaphas um, getting the boot? No, no. He's talking about really the real problem that's going on in planet Earth and even in our own lives. He's talking about the darkness that's behind the darkness because there is such a thing. 
And he goes on to say in verse 32, and I think we have it up on the screen. He says, and if I am, let's say the next word, if I am what? Lifted up? That's a common idiom for being lifted up on the tree or lifted up in crucifixion. If I am lifted up, he's not talking about praise, like lift him up, you know, and he draws people. He's talking about his crucifixion here. If I am lifted up, I will draw all peoples to myself. And this he said, signifying by what death he would die. Whoa, lifted up. Um, as I said, a common idiom for crucifixion. Draw all peoples to myself if he is lifted up. Oh, are you going to create something totally new and different in yourself? Oh Lord, you are after the darkness behind the darkness. That's exactly right. I mean, the emperor is dark. <laughs> the leaders are dark. There's a lot of ignorance, a lot of craziness, but let me tell you what I'm really, I'm after the, I'm after the strong man. I want to bind him. There's a whole other darkness behind all of that that I'm after. Please hear me. Look, you have an enemy. You have an enemy that wants to destroy you, wants to destroy your marriage, wants to destroy your family, wants to destroy your kids and your grandkids, wants to wreck a church, wants to undermine the gospel in a generation. And that's, that's this ruler that he's talking about that he is going after. Jesus came to judge Satan and to bring healing to the brokenness of relationship with God, which is the core problem with man. Now, do you know what is needed for your peace? Do you now know what is needed to stop the decay, the self-destruction, the brokenness? The answer in one word, it's the cross. It's like no matter what's going on in your life or your family or in culture, in our country, in our world, the answer is always found at the foot of the cross. And you say, wow, man, how do I wrap my mind around that? There's a lot of crazy things happening, a lot of unjust things happening. Yes, and I can't completely comprehend it as well, but I'll tell you this, you look at the cross, the Lord's hands are outstretched, incredible demonstration of humility, of love, even of equal opportunity, because it could be said in type, he's reaching out to the criminal to his right, he's reaching out to the criminal to his left, one mocks, the other embraces him, God's an equal opportunity God, he promises eternal life to the one who embraces him, he pays the debt of sin. That's the core problem. The core problem with man is, well, there's bad Caesars, there's bad Ayatollahs, there's bad marriages, but there's darkness behind those things. And that's a broken relationship with Almighty God. And the answer comes, the answer is the love of Christ, his forgiveness, the hope that is in him. Humility, letting it go, following Christ. He is the one, Jesus, in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection, that knocked off the darkness behind the darkness. And that's what we need. Can I hear an amen to that? And that's what the world needs. And that's the truth. So in some ways, please hear me. If we go back 2,000 years ago and we're coming into Jerusalem and we're thinking 
man, what he needs to do is, that pilot guy, he needs to knock off that guy. He's a bad guy. He represents a type of darkness. Annas and Caiaphas, they are so corrupt, it makes me want to spit. Okay, he wants to get, you got to get rid of those guys too. I mean, that, th- those guys are problems. Those guys actually just speak of a darkness that is behind it all. Those guys just are embody a brokenness with relationship with Almighty God. Can you see the significance, hopefully in a more beautiful, greater way, of the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago as he's coming into Jerusalem? Can you understand why he's burdened? Why he's talking about peace? Why he's saying, hey, look, please, now hear this. He's saying, gosh, um, I'm really paraphrasing. I'm so concerned you're going to miss the most important moment of your life, and that is to embrace me, the Messiah, the King, which, which is the ticket, if you will, which is the answer, which is the bridge, which is the life that God intended for you. Miss the, if you miss this decision, you miss everything. You could get, listen, you can get rid of the Ayatollah and you still got a problem. You can get rid of Hamas, you still got a problem. And that is the brokenness that God, that man, and, man has with Almighty God. The answer is Jesus Jesus, Jesus.